Who you calling crazy? Welcome to Who You Calling Crazy. This is a unique mental health podcast. We are erasing the stigma and elevating and normalizing dialogue around mental health. Of course, we'll be sharing practical therapy tips, but most importantly, we'll be diving into the stories and vulnerability of people you know or want to know. I'm your host, Juliette Cunley. So I'm Sam Hart, chef and owner of counter as well as a new restaurant called Biblio opening later this year. I like to say that I am more of a storyteller than anything else. That's how the restaurant is set up to be. So counter is a fine dining, story driven, progressive tasting menu in West Charlotte, where on a seasonal basis, we change not only the food that's on the plates, but also the story that is the driving force behind them. And Biblio, which is opening up later this year, is in honor of All the winemakers, vineyards, and distributors that often are not told their story through wine lists. So we're going to have over 500 unique bottles from uh, winemakers and vineyards that are really unique from how they were created and cultivated and then put into the bottle, but are not for some crazy reason usually found on most wine lists. Mm -hmm. So that's the restaurant and kind of what we do. And then me personally, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina originally. I'm a fifth generation Carolinian, seventh generation North Carolinian, uh, fifth generation Charlottesian, seventh generation North Carolinian. Uh-huh. There we go. <laughs> and I was originally in advertising sales and then pretty much at a drop of the hat went into cooking and obsessed with it ever since. And we opened up Counter 1.0 in September of 2020. We closed it last week and we will be reopening Counter 2.0 in two months in October. Okay. I'm just over here like smiling like an idiot because I'm just like, I'm like fangirling. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. Okay. Have you always been a storyteller? Uh, So why are stories important to you? So yes, when I was a kid, uh, what I wanted to be growing up was an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I kind of like the Indiana Jones of (laughs) North Carolina. Um, I always had this vision when I was younger of when I would walk down like a new path at my grandfather's dairy farm or when I would go to a new park or I would go, you know, hiking in the mountains or whatever. I would think to myself, you know, what was the last set of footprints that was before me? Same piece of land. And just thinking about the depth of all of those stories that even though they happen over a different part of the timeline, you know, they all step right here on this land. So that was what I initially went to college for actually was archaeology. And when I did not do well in college, dropped out, I, you know, kind of let that you know, push to the wayside. But even when I was in advertising, you know, the goal of advertising is to tell the story of that business in a way where other people find it interesting and want to be a part of that story. So I would say storytelling and learning about different communities and cultures and history has always been a very, very deep-seated interest in me. So as a therapist, me too, right? I mean, I'm just obsessed with people's stories, (laughs) getting into the stories. So I think that's what makes your spots very unique though, because you can tell your passion behind it. So let's get into your story then, my friend. Tell us a little bit about just like what comes to mind when I ask you about your mental health journey. Where do you go immediately in your mind? How old are you? Where do we start? So my mental health journey 
started when I was young, but unknowing to me. I would say that my full understanding of my personal mental health battles happened five years ago. Okay. Yeah, it's been, oh my gosh, it's been almost five years. How old are you? 30. Mm -hmm. So four years, how I learned about uh, my mental health battles was in a very abrupt situation. So I was diagnosed bipolar and with massive depressive disorder in a mental health hospital Mm -hmm. during a day, which I had no idea was happening until I just showed up because I had a very intense (laughs) moment of my life where then I kind of just blacked out and woke up in a hospital and I proceeded to stay there for 10 days and learned that, you know, this is what you have been struggling with for the past 12 years, but it just now caught up to you. Now you are aware of it through this crazy situation. So I had, um, unfortunately, this has become more of rule and less of the exception, but I had a lot of childhood trauma from when I was three to 13. And then, you know, that's something that I was kind of through one side of my family forced to, I was told to really force that away and force that down and pretty much just act like it didn't happen and figure out a way to cope with it and move forward. And then all those things led to subsequent butterfly effects that then led into my struggles a few years ago. And, you know, things that I still, I like to say that, you know, I don't have mental health issues or I have some sort of like, I don't like it when people say that they're like, I like to say that I have mental health battles and I'm succeeding through my mental health and always sort of positive twist on it. Because if you continue to say, I struggle with these mental health issues, I struggle with this, I struggle with this, then you're kind of just planting those seeds into your head that you will struggle with them and you're probably not going to succeed. That's when that all of that happened. And, I think head, and then you finally had this diagnosis. And so, I mean, what was that like to have a label and an understanding of what had been going on? It was kind of not an aha moment, but just like a duh, yeah mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. But then I kind of had at that point, it, because it was written on the table, there was this understanding of it. Then I knew what to do. I knew what my battle plan could be. I knew what practice. I could implement. I knew like who I could reach out to, to do something better. And I think, you know, that's why, you know, therapy in general should be something that not just people that struggle with mental health should reach out to something that everyone should reach out to, because at the end of the day, everyone struggles with some form of um, quote unquote mental illness, but the people who are aware of it and the people who know what their struggles are, they have an upper hand. It's more like we're succeeding more with mental illness and the people who you know have not figured out what it is, they're the ones who are truly struggling because they're not even aware of what's going on. Right. So prior to that catalyst, I mean, had you had any therapy or anything before that, or it was just the sweep under the rug, keep it moving? So when I was younger, I saw a therapist for two years. And this is where, you know, the story gets a little bit dark and crazy, but I grew up in a household with a lot of abuse from when I was three to 13. Once all that came to light and situations were somewhat taken care of, I went to state ordered therapy Mm -hmm. and I loved it. I love finally having someone to talk to and really know that it wasn't going to make its way outside of that door. And then that person really had my best interests in mind. 
fortunate situation is that my father really did not like that. That I was talking to somebody and he actually tried to get my therapist disbarred for making it look like he was at fault for all of these things and driving a wedge between himself and myself and then also with my mother and came a really ugly nasty situation Uh. and at that point I felt like I wasn't able to talk to somebody because I talked to somebody and my father finds out it's going to yeah so I didn't talk to another person again, actually, until I picked up Kadampa Buddhism about six years ago, when I could really talk to my spiritual teacher at the time. Uh, his name is uh, Talopa. And then when I went up to Chicago's Ginzamling. And even though they are not certified therapists, mm-hmm. there was something... There was someone who I could talk to and they had my best interest in mind. And, but they were also aware that I needed to talk to like a psychiatrist as well, the awareness of that. But through that and getting into this really dark and, you know, it's almost like, you know, I love how Stranger Things has the upside down. You know, when you go into meditation with some of, you know, with bipolar massive depressive disorder at the beginning, it's kind of like slipping into the upside down and you really find all these gross dark things that you don't want to think about on a daily basis. And you're told to kind of stifle away and full for learning about and practicing meditation, because you, that's to me, the ultimate way that you finally come to terms with some of these things and figure out a way to make them beautiful is by you yourself going into your own mind and learning more about them. And that's such a a barrier for a lot of people that, you know, I don't want to go to therapy. They're just going to uncover all this shit. And I figured out how to live with it to this point. And so to hear people like you who have walked through that, people like me who have walked through that where, yeah, it's not always comfortable, but what's on the other side is much more beautiful. (laughs) Right. You got to till the soil. I think that's the one of the analogies I heard best is that you can't have a beautiful garden if you don't till the soil first. Love that. The other thing I wanted to comment on was just, we see this a lot when parents kind of commandeer their kids therapy (laughs) (laughs) and yours happened in the worst way possible where it was a safe space was taken from you. And then as a kid, you're trying to wrap your head around like, well, wait a second, who can I trust? And what, I mean, that must've just been so disorienting and lonely. And the worst thing is, is that because I was 13 and I was overly mature for my age at that point, I not only saw it happening, I almost saw it coming as well. And so I just, from the beginning, I had this almost, you know, there's a end date on this and that was very difficult, but yeah, I mean, it's a response. That's a trauma response. When you are now you're hypervigilant and you're always scanning for threats and you kind of anticipate how it's going to go. That doesn't surprise me at all. So, I mean, can I ask, like, how how does the childhood trauma stuff and the attachment stuff with parents still impact you today? So it does. So, but I'm thankfully very aware of that. And also, I had this amazing opportunity to to do something that I never, never would have imagined doing, you know, when I was younger. So when I was in therapy, one of the most really striking things I was told by my therapist was that victims of child abuse are eight times more likely to be abusers themselves 
or eight times more possible of being the victors of it and in assisting children in those moments. And, you know, it's, she was pretty much like, you've got one of two options. My goal over the time talking with you is that you follow along the path of being that victor versus being down that path of being an abuser. And she made it very clear to me of what the possibilities were. And so my next, even now, you know, my 17 years is like, how can I be a victor for these children in, you know, really horrifying times? But I was also very, very scared to work with children and be around children because I was like, what happens if this weird, crazy thing snaps and all of a sudden, you know, I'm going crazy. Like, you know, looking back at it, it was a very crazy thing to think that like on a moment's notice, but you know, that's, as you mentioned before, you know, that's a trauma response. So after I left that hospital, actually um, in Chicago, someone who is a part of what we call our Sangha or the community of the, the meditation center, she offered me a job to teach children how to cook. And so I had this like, oh my gosh, we taught kids and this is where it gets crazy. I was teaching kids from three years old to 13 years old, how to cook food on a weekly basis. So the entire decade of my abuse history, when I was a child, I was teaching kids how to cook on a daily basis and gave me this platform to where I could use what I had fallen in love with and obsessed with in food and teach it to children. But also at the same time, I was learning and finding a way and finding an outlet to be that victor for children. And so to this day, that is the most heart fulfilling and happy job that I've ever had. Like, I absolutely love it when people come into the restaurant, we have a good time and we, you know, when everything goes right and we have a beautiful service. That's amazing. But teaching six-year-olds how to make chocolate chip cookies and hearing some of the random jokes and things that they do, that was so incredibly fun. And it allowed me to also grow and develop in that sense. And that's why at the restaurant now, we have two very strong partnerships with local 501c3s. And that is the Relatives and their on-ramp center on Freedom Drive, which assists crisis youth from 24. And then also... We work with the LGBTQ plus crisis center of timeout youth um, over on Monroe Road as well, because um, that's another element of my story is that situation. So you know, that's something that if it wasn't for learning how to cook with kids at Kids Table in Chicago, wouldn't realize that this is a, po- a possible avenue to assist children, but also develop myself as well in the future. And so creating that beauty out of trauma situation, you know. Right. And that must have been so healing for your younger self in a lot of ways. Yes, it was. That's so powerful. Like, what a gift. Okay, so let's segue to sexuality. Oh, yay. (laughs) Cut it up. (laughs) So... I knew I was different. This is really funny. I've actually, I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. Yeah. So you get that one. Um, and this is embarrassingly funny, by the way. Okay, so here. I have a sister. She is not a biological sister. She's not a separate half sister. She is someone who I, she had trauma in her childhood at pretty much at the exact same time that I had some in mine. And we were the only two people in our class that had that situation. And so we really bonded and became friends. And then we had this really, really dumb idea of going on a date with each other. 
it was hysterically embarrassing. And we knew that it was a, like, it was not going to work out 30 seconds into it. And so, you know, we we're just, you know, having fun as friends, but we went to go see a movie and this is so embarrassing. It's called Elizabeth town. Yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, oh my so bad. It has Orlando blue and it's, it's cringeworthy, but I remember watching that on a date with a girl and being like in one and thinking it was the stupidest, sappiest thing ever, but that Orlando Bloom is really, really attractive. <laughs> uh-huh. And so this is when I was, I think, 12 or 13. I'm not, I'm not sure, but. I love that you just shared that. <laughs> I know, right? It's so yes. ridiculous. Orlando Kristen. Bloom. That's what did it. That's what brought it into life for you. You know it. Kristen. <laughs> One of my absolute favorite people, you know, she is my sister, as I said, you know, to this day. And so she's going to laugh her ass off when she finds out that 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 was the moment, too, because she doesn't even know that. Oh, my Um, gosh. Okay, so what did you just sat with that? And were you just like the first person ever hear that? So anywho, what did you um, do with that realization? What happened in that moment? I just I realized that I was this is where it's really bad. I realized I was doing something wrong, which was, you know not healthy, but I, I don't know what took place over the next like three years from that point to make me more comfortable that I can't pinpoint it. But then I moved to Virginia to a boarding school and it was an all male boarding school. And I was, I moved there because the high school that I was going to was not a good high school. The valedictorian just got into, you know, in my mind, a lower end school. And so I was like, if I want to go to a good college and learn how to be an archaeologist, I I can't do it here. So I found out that my father's side of the family had this legacy at this school in Virginia. And I called it Hogwarts without magic, but just white. And (laughs) that sounds about right. So on brand. And so I go up there and I realized how outrageously, because I I went from a CMS public school that was very diverse to this not diverse by any stretch of the imagination, all white male boarding school, pretty much. I mean, there was a little bit of diversity, if you could call it that. Mm -hmm. And I was so scared that someone would find out Mm -hmm. straight. And my junior year was when I with some support of a couple of friends that I did become comfortable with and came out to, they brought up something to me where if you don't come out like, and they're like, you know, do it on your own time, but just letting you know, if you don't come out more little gay kids, when they come and visit here, not going to think that this is a place where they can really grow and thrive. And also it was kind of like this fun little to these super like, for lack of a better term, closeted straight children that had never been around someone like this before. You know, this is where, hello, you're going to have to deal with this and understand this and learn about this before you go to college. So I came out my my junior year. And at the time, there were that same year, there was a what we call a new boy junior. So he had just joined the high school and he was he was very openly gay. And that was a huge, that was a huge positive reinforcement and like really helped me come out was him being there. It was, um, so that happened mm-hmm. and it was, I was out until I moved to Utah for a year and I felt like I had to stuff myself back into the closet or someone would attach me to a stake and burn me at the stake because me living in a certain religious bubble out there. I came back 
was back out again. And then my first marriage, they did not like me, uh, did not like me being out because her family was incredibly conservative, very, very conservative. And one of the things that I am still frustrated to this day that I did was throw myself back into the closet just so I could appease her family and appease her. And that was incredibly unhealthy. So once that and then obviously that marriage was not going to work out. And as soon as that went by the wayside, the rest is history. I was like, I'm always going to be myself from this point on. I'm sick and tired of changing who I am just to appease others. Because at the end of the day, whoever I truly am, I'm sure that I can appease more people and make more people happy by just being who I am. That's what I decided to do five years ago when that took place. So, Which is like yeah. really recent, honestly, you know, yeah. and it's such a hard journey to get there. <laughs> It's been a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so much of this podcast is about stigma, you know? And so can we talk about the nuanced stigma just around like bisexuality? Yes. That even kind of gets a different stigma than when people come out as gay or queer, like there's just a different stigma around bisexuality. Can you speak to that? So I um, actually consider myself pansexual and the greatest description of pansexuality comes from the show Shit's Creek mm-hmm. and where he goes, you know, some days I'm into Merlot, some days I'm into Chardonnay and, you know, some days I'm into a Cabernet Sauvignon that used to be a Sauvignon Blanc. And with, so with sex being such a negative, traumatic part of my youth, that is not the primary focus of a relationship to me. It's more of that emotional and mental intimacy than anything else. But I will say, you know, it is kind of weird. Like, you know, people who are bisexual and pansexual, we kind of feel like we don't have a home. Like there are no, like, this is kind of funny from an adult standpoint, there's no bisexual bars. (laughs) You got gay bars, right? You even have trans bars, which are awesome. If you've never been to one, they're amazing. And, you know, you kind of do feel out of place in a world where you already feel out of place. So you kind of feel like the outskirt of the outskirt for a little bit. But then if you are, what I've learned is if if you are comfortable and confident in who you are, you will attract people who are also comfortable and confident in who they are and also who love you. If you love yourself, you'll find people who love you too. And it's difficult at the beginning, but instead of getting wrapped up in the whole, I'm different to even the people who are different mindset, then it's not only, you know, a very negative thing that you can do to yourself, but you're kind of losing out on who you are as a person with your sexuality. I love everyone from a more molecular basis and I'm attracted to people more for, you know, who they are rather than body parts they have. And if I'm afraid to be that person because I'm afraid of people like looking down at that, you're, you're kind of reversing the philosophy that you stand for anyway. So yeah, it it does make it a little bit different, especially I would say here in the South, still have people who don't understand. You still have people who are so anti LGBTQ that forget trying to be the plus sign. And it's interesting. And let me also just publicly apologize because I thought you had told me previously that well, here's, and I shouldn't have done this with you. No, this is my fault for assuming, and I just do this automatically. In North Carolina, I usually just say that because that's something that people know. And also, it's kind of funny for a chef to be pansexual because uh, I all the time. 
and I hate getting that joke, but I love making it too. That's the worst. It's so bad. But I mean, think what people are starting to realize because, you know, you have a lot of really stupid people and I know issue saying that really ignorant, stupid people who believe that there's only one way that everyone in the entire world can love another person. And I think what people are starting to realize, you know, as the LGBTQ plus community, not only thrives, but also are learning more about the individual self is that every individual person loves in a completely different way. And I think one day, I mean, the beauty to me is that maybe there are no assumptions and labels and anything just people loving everyone and people, you know, being are and loving who they are, but also at the same time, people loving everyone for who they are individually. And then however relationships strike, you know, that's how relationships strike, you know, everyone's attracted to a different kind of person. And I think that's what we're seeing, especially with younger generations. One of the coolest moments ever to me was when I was teaching a summer camp at that the kids cooking school. And we had a 12 year old kid and they were non-binary and they said what their, their name was and their pronouns. And the entire week with 20 kids, I didn't have one issue. And I was convinced I was going to have, I had all of this stuff written down of uh, what I was going to do when these issues arose and like all of this. And I was like, I'm so excited to be, be like this, like guardian and like Victor for you know this child. And, and I didn't have to do anything like these kids completely were like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, they make us feel like things things might be okay. And I really, really hope that that truly is the future. And I got a feeling that it is. You know, we talk so much about, you know, all the scary things of the future. But I think there's also some really beautiful things that are, are being, that have taken root and are currently growing right now in, you know, the two generations after millennial, which are, you know, those two generations are either fully grown adults or they're young adults adults right now. And it's really beautiful to see what they're doing um, because a few of them work for absolutely adore them. And I really hope that more of the rule versus the exception in the coming years. Yeah. What do you think your, you know, your adolescent self would think about the fact that you now you've created a business where you can do what you want, where you talk about being, you know, being queer, you talk about highlighting BIPOC people, whatever it is, like you've created this space where you can be so open about things and step into that. I think my younger self would think one of, well, would think two things at the same time. So first off, my younger self would be shocked that I'm still alive. Like in complete honesty, I actually had, when I was in middle school, I had a a vice principal tell me that I probably was not going to make it to 30 and I was going to end up flipping her burgers at Wendy's. But no, I did go back to when I got into Brown and Dickinson College and put the acceptance letter on her desk. I said, I don't think I'm going to be flipping your burgers in the future. But what's really funny is that I ended up flipping burgers at a uh, nice restaurant and I was just laughing the whole time I was doing it. But I thought up until... I would say up until about 22 that I wasn't going to make it to 30. And, you know, that was a huge, you know, obviously positive. But I don't think that my younger self would be surprised that I unabashedly myself because there was such a long time that I was like, okay, once I get to college, I can be who I am. Once I become an adult, I can be who I am. 
And instead of thinking in the moment, why don't I just be myself now? But I will say that I do think my adolescent self would be also very surprised and hopefully proud that I did become that victor and not the abuser. All of that work, all of the, like, and the pain didn't stop, you know, but all of that consistent effort led into being in that eight times more likely to be a victor category than eight times more likely to be an abuser category. Yeah. That, I think that's the, the coolest thing ever is that, uh, so the past two years, the restaurant we've been a part of or personally donated over $100,000 to local 501c3s that focus on children. And yes, that is the, I am more proud of that than anything. Like, it's just the coolest, it's the coolest thing ever. And that the entire team, all 16 people at Counter, that entire group, they all believe in that vision as well. And I think that's the coolest thing ever. You know, we fully understand that this restaurant is more important than the four walls that's inside of it and the food that we put on plates. It's what are we doing for the community? Um, we recently, you know, put on to our heart this idea of, you know, don't try and do better. Just do better. Like it's not, we're in a position where we don't have to try. Anymore. We have the ability to just do it. So let's do that. You know, it's really cool to see the entire team have that same mindset. You've created that. You've set that tone. And I just want to say for listeners, if you haven't been there, it's obvious. Like the the dynamic, the culture, the air that's in the restaurant. I mean, that's obvious. Not only is the food like fucking stunning, but you can tell. <laughs> you can tell the passion. And now to, for me to understand more of the story behind it, it just makes it that much sweeter. Kudos. Thank you. And I would be remiss if I don't consistently talk about how amazing the team is behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was pop ups and the opening of the restaurant, I felt like I, you know, it was me and, you know, really two other people just doing everything. And, you know, I realized very early on that I can't do everything by myself. But, and especially, you know, when you find a team that are filled with specialists and they are so good at certain things um, and you put them, you know, you create positions for them. Like we hire people and then make positions for them rather than creating positions and just finding people to fill those positions. It makes it so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a healthier too as well. Okay. So last question, what do you do to maintain, to tend to your mental health now to maintain self-care? What does that look like these days? So. Over the past six months, I would say that my, what I would call my daily practice, that's what we call it in Kadampa Buddhism is, you know, what is your daily practice suffered actually a little bit just as we close the restaurant and reopen it. But it's something that I've taken very, I've become aware of and taken more time to focus on, okay, my future daily practice, what am I doing right now? But meditation, whether it's for 30 seconds or 30 minutes and anywhere in between or even further, you know, that's something that takes place on a daily basis. I mean, that could, there have been times where I've literally gone to the restroom at the restaurant and then that was the only place I knew that I could not get affected by anyone. And for about five minutes, just meditate is definitely key. One thing that I did not realize was so important until the past few months is being physically active. It was embarrassing. Actually, we were at a vineyard and I was struggling to get in and out of a golf cart. And I was like, man, you are getting old and decrepit and this is not you and you need to do more physical activity. I'm not in terrible shape and I'm struggling to get in and out of a golf cart. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, that's always been one 
But one like odd uh, spiritual practice that I've had is talking and listening to people and learning so many amazing stories this week in Napa. And, you know, when we do research development for these menus, which we have, so right now we have about 94 menus planned out over the next five years. And with that, there's so many stories that lie within it. Like our next menu of modern, there's 14 stories that we have dived into and we'll be telling to people during the menu and, and learning all of that, you know, is definitely something that assists, um, you know, it's a kind of a quirky one, but it, it definitely assists um, with my mental health on a daily basis. Again, I obviously, I get that. I think people like us are drawn to the authenticity of when people are willing to share like their real story and then to be, to have your own story listened to. I mean, that's what makes us feel connected and seen and valued. To me, there's nothing more important than each other's stories. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for sharing yours. You're like the coolest person. This, I really enjoy that because there's so many damn podcasts about, you know, what you ate yesterday. <laughs> Did you see XYZ, you know, person doing something dumb on XYZ show? And I think it's really, or like the nonstop amount of horror story podcasts. <laughs> you know, it's cool that someone is taking a very concentrated effort to focus on something like this because. If your brain and your heart aren't functioning, you're not functioning. And uh, it's really cool um, what you're doing. And I may or may not have binge listened to to previous podcasts. So I really appreciate um, what you're doing as well. Well, thank you. Thanks. And that's the whole point. People will listen and it'll normalize things. And then they're going to make a reservation at one of your or both your restaurants. And they're going to be better for it. I can't wait. And so this is like a weird thing for you to have some time, quote unquote, time off. Like it's pretty weird. I love it and can't stand it at the same time. Yeah. I tell you what though, if I ever had one complaint ever while I'm up here, I would feel terrible because this place is gorgeous. The weather is constantly amazing. And I have been shocked at how amazing the people are up here too. Um, because I was very much so going to be like we're the royalty and you're the peasants coming to see our palace situation that has not been the case at all um it's really cool he's in napa y'all so you can live vicariously not all wine people are pretentious and annoying (laughs) hey thank you so much i can't wait to check out the new spots what'd you say well thank you I said most of most of us are a little bit pretentious. Hey, damn it, you're right. All right. Okay. But at least we know yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. But thank you again so much. And yeah. I have now only a wonderful rest of your day. But when you go on your travels as well, you have a wonderful time. Thank you. So who you calling crazy? I think you mean human. We are removing the stigma, y'all. Say it loud and proud. Yep, I go to therapy. 